Ok. Traduction. Wow, 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 Translation. Traduction. Translator's note. Today on the show, I am so excited to be talking to one of my favorite poets, translators, and people, Margaret Ross. Margaret's poems and translations have appeared in the New Republic, the Paris Review, and Poetry. She attended the Iowa Writers' Workshop, was a Fulbright Fellow in China, and a Stegner Fellow at Stanford. She is currently an assistant professor at the University of Chicago. She's the author of A Timeshare, published by Omnidon in 2015, and her second book, Saturdays, is going to be published by The Song Cave. Everyone is so excited about it. It's hard to overstate how obsessed we are with Margaret Ross in Iowa. When she came to read my first year in the writer's workshop, this was spring of 2022, there was just kind of uh, Margaret mania for a period of several weeks. Margaret tends to memorize her poems, which means that when she reads, she's not really reading, she's actually reciting. And that frees up her eyes to be staring directly at the audience with a gaze that is piercing, enchanting, somewhat terrifying. After Margaret gave her reading that spring, everybody kind of started writing Margaret poems. You'd look, at, you'd look through the packets of the submitted poems and they would all be kind of Margaret Ross copycat poems. I think impersonating Margaret is very good for your poetry practice. I highly recommend it. I still try to do it all the time. Margaret returned in the fall of 2022 to actually teach a course at Iowa. It was a class on poetic closure, how to end a poem. And we looked at a huge range of poetry, much of it in translation. She often provided multiple translations of a single poem, which I think showed her attentiveness to translation and her attentiveness to language in general. I learned so much from having Margaret as a teacher, and her book has been like a handbook for me in terms of how to convince the reader of the stakes of a poem what Robert Frost called legitimate danger. It wasn't until later that I discovered Margaret's incredible translations of the Chinese poet Huang Fen, and I was so moved by them that I thought, why not bring Margaret onto the podcast? So here's my conversation with Margaret Ross. I hope you enjoy it. years ago yeah it came out um yeah I guess it was eight years ago I know it feels I was looking at it again and it feels so far to me now Mm -hmm. um because then of course it was written like more I don't know like 12 years wow yeah well it I it was it came out of my thesis when I was in the workshop so um how close is it to your thesis you know I think it's pretty close. Like there might be, I'm sure that there are substantial edits within individual poems. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think I, I, I hope that I kicked out a lot, but I think I probably kept the majority of um, that manuscript. Um, it has a different title. Oh, what yeah. was the thesis title? A day in space and another day. I went back and forth actually, and 
I, when I was submitting it, I had, I would submit it under both titles and I wasn't sure which was time right. Time or space. Yeah. Time or space. Yeah. So, oh, it's always the question. <laughs> For me, it's time. I feel like you, you chose yeah. the right one. Oh, thank you. <laughs> okay. Well, while we're talking about it. I do have questions for you about it. Cool. I think to start, I mean, I've been thinking a lot about interviews. Mm -hmm. So then I was thinking of the interviews that appeared in this. As I saw it, or the question, at least the question and answers that I saw in this. Mm -hmm. One was in the epigraph, which is from the play Blasted by Sarah Kane, I think. Mm -hmm. um, I will quote from it to, for the listeners out there. Uh, Basically, a char one character hears a knock at the door. And then here's, here's how it goes. Ian looks at the door. Then he knocks twice. Silence, then two more knocks from outside. Ian thinks. Then he knocks three times. Silence. Three knocks from outside. Ian knocks once. One knock from outside. Ian knocks twice. Two knocks. I love that epigraph so much. I think it's so cool. Um, and I hear an echo of it later in your poem, Human Resources, um, which has a stanza that goes like this. Time snaking its concentric years around the soft pulp aisled up the center, tightening. Show me the part you mean. You can't see. Show it to me. No, it's private then describe the feeling. And it continues. So I guess I was wondering, like, if you see a resonance there, what your, what your process was for choosing that epigraph and, um, yeah, and what it feels like to be interviewed about your work. Um, thanks for that question and for noticing that connection. I don't remember if I was aware of it when I, when I wrote, but I, I um, I love that you found that. I so I came to this epigraph through um, Sarah Kane's play Blasted, which I read actually in a seminar in workshop. Joelle McSweeney taught a seminar in which we read that play, and um, I love this scene just for this sort of like very um, sort of ordinary surreality of it like that mm -hmm. gesture like what would it be to actually knock from inside um but it also is a gesture which within the play like completely alters the play's relationship to realism and time like mm. the the plot shifts really drastically after this uh, moment at the door and this um sort of like confusion between or confusion is maybe the wrong word but the way in which that gesture of knocking from the inside um shifts uh interiority and and exteriority and maybe sort of like inner life and outer life or there are so many ways to think about those two um realms of being but yeah. it, it invites a kind of um explosion of uh the, the sort of setting of the play and the stakes of the play, and, and um, it's a really violent uh, aftermath <laughs> from this scene. But oh, yeah, no. I, I, it's a—I mean, it's a—it's a great play. It's a—it's a very intense um, 
play, and I, I won't summarize the whole thing, but um, I think that I was thinking throughout the book, I, in a lot of the poems about um, interior and, and exterior life, thought, and um, action. Also, like, the um, relationship between abstraction and figuration, which um, it feels like a surreal gesture is somehow in between um, the abstract and the figurative or like the more um, conventional. I think it's really started from reading about um, abstraction and painting. Like I was mm. really obsessed at the time with this book um, called Confronting Images that was by this French art historian, um, George uh, D.D. Huberman, hmm. and he, and it was, th it was that book, and then also he had a book about Fra Angelico's paintings, in which, um, he was making a case that rather than the, um, sort of figurative portion of the painting, which is always what's reproduced in books, and what had been sort of, like, treated as the image yeah. that the artist had made, that the real image also included these kinds of decorative um, frames that the that that he had also painted onto the wall when they were frescoes. So he would like paint marble um, mm. beneath the painting, like a so that there would be, you know, eighteen inches of an angel uh, in some sort of pastel space, and then beneath yeah. it, eighteen inches of painted marble. Oh. And there would be, you know, a relationship between the color and some of the sort of form and, and obviously they both occupied the same like physical amount of space but one was decorative or abstract and one was um figurative and um somehow that felt like a really uh rich idea for me at the time in thinking about how you could do that with a poem so like could you have a poem that was made up of some abstract description and mm -hmm. and then also move in and out of figuration or something that was more legible in like a quote-unquote like realist context um and yeah the way that that Sarah Kane scene is taking this really sort of like ordinary action of knocking on a door and mm -hmm. then just by sort of formally shifting it to knock from inside we have this kind of like uncanny and like disarming encounter with like that gesture as yeah, as even a sort of normal action. Yeah. Um, and yeah. like the idea that the interior is the private space and the exterior is the public space. Like what if you swapped those and what would that look like? And in the context of the play, it's like apocalyptic. But um, yeah, I think all of these sorts of questions were... Uh, were in my in my mind at that time especially yeah the the last lines of the whole book are i can describe inertia i have been there it looks the same as here the street, convincingly painted onto glass 
as if you could go. Those lines reminded me of your poem Love, which came out last year, I think, Mm -hmm. and which has one of my all-time favorite stanzas, which is, once when I was there and he had left the room, I wrote on a scrap of paper in my wallet, he's just a person, so I could read it later when I was home. I really want to ask you if that's a true story, but I'm not going to. (laughs) But your speaker is often looking at something that she's not exactly able to apprehend or access the reality of, or in some cases, objects appear to be simulacra of themselves. In, In your title poem, you describe this as everything replaced with replicas. That seems to be this kind of recurring theme, which seems connected to the idea of like, the ordinary surreal. And I wonder if that is a motion you were consciously trying to access in the book, or it seems like it's still preoccupying you to some degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, furniture was big, big for me. <laughs> I mean, all decorative, you know, in some, like even the kind of idea of like, what is the content of the paint? Like, what is the sort of decorative border and what is the sort of emotional information that we're receiving even though it's not what the eye is taught to focus on Mm -hmm. um furniture um yeah these pieces these sorts of like um uh supporting actors or something or these like side the the kind of companions to the protagonists that seem like they uh, convey some kind of melancholy information. I think that I was thinking a lot about like what would the furniture be in a in language? Like, yeah. is there furniture yeah. in a conversation? And there is, and it's small talk. Mm-hmm. And like to think, like I remember, I, I was really, um, you know, I, I mean, I was living in Iowa City, where like as you know, it feels like there's all of this time in your day that's really different than if you've lived in cities before where you have to commute and and be um moving much more and so (laughs) (laughs) there was more time to reflect on these questions but but I did think a lot about like small talk being like the cheapest language or like this kind of disposable language that also is in a in a strange way this kind of like uh eruption of abstract content within human conversation like you're not really saying anything it's mm-hmm. just like this kind of like sonic record of distance between people and and sometimes the benevolent wish to right. to smooth over the distance or to bridge the distance but that there can be um there can be this uh this like brick a brack or something within 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 speech and and what would it how would you bring um, some of that uh, static into a poem and what would it do to a poem to kind of move between, um, uh, to move between something that was more like a kind of submerged decorative state and Mm -hmm. a more... um, uh, direct communicative state or yeah. something like that. I think about yeah. that a lot with translation, yeah. especially because what counts as small talk mm-hmm. varies from language to language. So mm-hmm. 
um, what I think is is sometimes like misconstrued as like a cultural difference mm-hmm. is is a linguistic difference of if you say to some like if you greet somebody and say how are you yeah and in some languages the response to that is to actually tell them how you are yeah whereas if you do that in English you're a sociopath totally yeah right. I know. It's actually, it's really amazing. Like, the more you think about, like, mm-hmm. what are the actual words that build the small talk yeah. in my day? And what it, what was I saying? Like, what was actually being shared right. in that exchange, if yeah. anything? Maybe, maybe you can read a poem or two. Yeah. Would you be up for that? I think the poem of those, the ones I feel closest to 10 plus years later are yeah. a timeshare and um, age control concentrate. Okay. Um, okay, a timeshare. Five o'clock again in the rented living room. Nothing wrong. Heliotrope continuing to fade into upholstery. Buttons pressing back against the back of the couch make the surface cave, just decorative, faint gardens stamped on a cotton throw. And that the world. Yes, no. Yes, though, if there is such a thing as time at all, I never saw it move. And if that's so, then what am I afraid of? I hung a muslin curtain to prove breeze, a nimble petal. Tall, fluctuating seraphim who keeps watch over me. Q. What are you doing down there in the, there in the meantime? X. All day, I am an orchard at midday when the stunned air pauses, bronze and stupid, terse with flies. Don't lie. I'm in the living room. Seconds dropping from the faucet to the metal bed of the sink. This is your one. Now this is. Now late, nobody waits for thee on the greeny moor where I was laying all stuck with you. Or the queue, did we outgrow our dream of a point repaired to when alone? Some to the landfill, some to the promontory, each with a small, smooth stone tapping soft on his chest or clicking against his teeth when on his tongue. Once you thought you would learn what to do with yourself by yourself, Once the stakes flush high as a view from the beautiful private plain, all persons disappear, and he alone looks down on freeways embroidering the vacant earth. It was still early in my life. X. Go along. Touch your eye. Do you know how to do that thing of whispering a fact repeatedly until it stops being true? Return to this apartment after being gone a while to find everything replaced with replicas identically arranged. The cedar desk had the same false front as before and fitted with the same brass garland handle, still unable to pull out a drawer because it is no drawer. That was the soul. Communicating chambers of my third-story home string a sentence furnished with second-hand pieces. White hooded lamps are nursed to me all night when I can snap space open like a parachute, make the walls up. When I lived out a summer with a blind man by the sea, he kept a steady squint. I closed my eyes. It was still early then in my brief life, evenings, every morning at the folding table, painting his toast black with marmite. Once she was me, we took turns for the bed. A room with everything white except the book spines makes you feel the good kind of dead. 
When is it? Someone's kid downstairs leans on the bell again, lived winters half an hour away or seven minutes on the red line times he had me scissor brackenstocks to stanch the mud floor of the animal shed. From space the night's a hammock swinging gently out across our earth, each fall slushed over. Bird calls, tiny screws creaking shut your mind when I used my fingernail to scrape white tallies on my naked ankle then. Think of the long trip home. You're already home. All the loyal idiot details know what to do to stay believable, but you, you who sit and let the light rust, reddening all around you, waiting for anyone to come and tell you to get up, get up. Nobody is. Thank you so much. It's really strange to go from reading that on my sofa with your voice <laughs> like in my head to actually hearing it in person. It's funny. I was just remembering as I was reading it, like it's pertinent, I think, to translation, a poem that I was really um, fixated on when I was writing this mm. was this poem called Via by Caroline Bergvall. It's a poem that she made by going to some university library and checking out every single oh, copy yes. of the Inferno. Yeah. Yes. And then and then alphabetizing the first um stanza of each translation. Um and yeah, that sort of uh the way that the repetition in that poem is so expressive and profound and feels not at all like a conceptual exercise, but mm -hmm. like she's by the end through just the arrangement of these different translations gotten to some like pith of difficulty. Oh yeah, definitely. Is, it, it stunned me. And then thinking about like forms of repetition in one's daily life. And, you know, I mean, the, the poem is thinking about returning to, or your relationship to the, the objects you live among and um, that kind of repetition of daily exposure. Mm. But yeah, just in thinking about translations that were important, and I, I, I was not translating at the time, but I remember reading that poem a lot, and um, yeah. Yeah, it reminds me of something Jess Lazar said when she was here, which was she was at her parents' house using their dishes, mm -hmm. which were the same dishes that they had when she was a child, and she was like, these were the dishes of their lives. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, I mean, there's something that, it's obviously funny, but it's also like, I, like a true horror that I feel. Yeah. And it's like, oh my God, yeah. Like, we only get one set of dishes and then we die. Uh-huh. Um, I know. And it's not even considered an important possession. <laughs> <laughs> I consider them very important. <laughs> When you say that this poem, uh, you feel a closeness to it all these years later, what do you think it is about that? I don't know. I mean, I often th feel reading, certainly reading my own book and sometimes reading other books, like that every poem is trying to get at a certain there's not that many sort of frequencies of feeling mm -hmm. that are the subject of the book and the poems are sort of trying their hardest one by one to get to it and mm -hmm. some 
get closer than others and this one felt like it got there so mm-hmm. maybe <laughs> I don't know maybe some of the others were just attempts um but yeah for some reason this one has remained a real poem for me and, and some of the others feel like they were practice age control concentrate it looks like water feels like water with the ease of water leached ever blow a raw egg through its pinpricked shell a sterner and more nervous thing feels like water with enhanced wariness to be twice daily rubbed into the face it's possible to think said my grandmother's grandfather without apparent wrinkling the skin a stupid flag flies any nation consciousness has seized star at the edge x center sickle where a question was and now a girl with laser gun aimed at the price stickers no returns window Pressed my temple to the streaky pane of the subway glass to watch a fingerprinted black rip by, fast fabric ending at the billboard of a woman's forehead blinking back and forth from line to clear. Hunch the self is many-personed sequence. Every day I woke inside another stranger's shape and dressed it in the same red sweater, ditch I'd fallen into, pooled, and would soon under heat evaporate. There's nothing like the sight of repetition purged of sense. I don't know what thought traveled me so many times its route shows plainly on my face. I kept from girlhood strict divisions in the head, so what I felt was as it were arrested where it could not crease appearance. Is there no method to flush out the self that wants the others gone, misgivings drowned, all attention held there in the room where the time is wide, and a long enduring doubt lifts your hand to its paper cheek, as an old man humming scraps from the twenties he is certain he is still a child in, and if my features never move again, then the first half of a makeover is free. A beautician hones a boundary, marking off the red side of the mouth from the dull, the sepia-shaded right from the left eye, explains it's best to smooth the fragile lid using the digit with least power. There we are, to be applied at night. There's $90 water you can buy to look like you have never lived this life. Beige ceiling mirrored in the chrome top counter, modeling the thought of a fleeting, brittle, standard issue, cheap, tight, one second now, one second next, provisional arrangement, where just repeating myself flaws a substance so changeable, I touch it only with ring finger. Less muscle, so less pull. Yes, even if they're still. You can lie yourself in bed and wake up in the upscale public restroom of your life. From stalls step many replicas of some guy in complete tuxedo. The marble was pink. They began to hit them him on him, all of them, or did, but so no blood appeared, stall doors slamming back and forth and echoing off the marble. This is one of a few poems that made me think about comic books. Yeah. Because I just have this image of all the panels, this person traveling through time Mm -hmm. and each each snapshot they're still there and then you get the um the many person sequence it reminds me of uh a stanza from decay constant too um did you take them for assembly lines 
or for a comic strip, the girl performing slightly different operations by herself in alternate time frames. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting with what you were saying about the frames that you were thinking about, too, the, the, like the decorative frame and then the content that's inside of it. Yeah, totally. I know. And that sort of experience of actually being alien to yourself from mm -hmm. day to day, but technically, socially, you're still the same person. Yeah. What was it about that one that stuck out to you? Um, do you remember writing it? I do, yeah. I remember I wrote it, and then I was so frustrated that I was always working at this length of mm. like a two-and-a-half-page poem that I tried to cut it down to um, a half a page. I had a version of it that was a half-page poem, but it was just or it like it didn't it really didn't work yeah. it was like you can't i i i think i w i was really trying to learn like what yeah maybe where the frame is for a poem or like how do you choose what's in and what's out and like if you're using music to write like trying to follow the music of it like when does that deliver you to something you want to keep and when is that actually just like a means of of um getting you to a stanza the route to which can disappear once yeah. the poem is written. Um, I mean, I think I'm always thinking about that, what's in and what's out. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, the I think some of it is also like what still feels natural in my mouth. Like I was looking at the at the poems you mentioned. This one still feels like, oh yeah, I know that cadence, and that's. I mean, I do think your music changes over time, and I mean, hopefully. So I just don't have it in my body as much for some of the others. Hmm. Um, What's the direction it's moving for you, if you can speak to that? Um, well, some of it was, like, formally, I, I was really committed to regular stanzas in this book, and I believed that that was a kind of commitment to realism because it felt like the regularity of the stanzas conveyed um, the sort of external structure. So it's a sort of like clock time. Mm -hmm. And then that the sentence would not be sort of at liberty to just move um, or to, to shape its own stanzas, but it would have to kind of push against this um, other regular time um, seemed to me like a, tr a true drama um, and the sentence being a kind of a, a experience time or time as it's felt, time as it's um, exists in feeling and mm -hmm. emotion um, and that kind of uh, contrast or tension between the sentence and, and the regular stanza was important. That, and that's gone. I, I haven't written in, in stanzas this uniform in a long time. That's really interesting. I, I wanted to ask you about, um, especially in the third section, it seems like you kind of arrive at a form that, that pervades most of the poems, mm -hmm. which is quatrains, which you have throughout the book. Mm -hmm. But then specifically, they take on this form of a left-justified line two indented lines mm -hmm. and then another left justified line. So there are these kind of divots in each stanza. Yeah. I was wondering if that 
um, what 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 function was that serving for you? Did you write them in that way, or is um, this is this kind of imposed after the fact? I guess I mean everything is was written in prose initially, like, and sometimes mm-hmm. I would put in a bracket for a line break. But yeah, I mean, it gets back when we were speaking in the beginning about like how does the poem even appear at uh-huh. first and for me it's always just like a lot of longhand prose writing and a lot of repetition like writing the same words over slightly differently um variations and then the stand I guess I mark brackets the indentation I like they it feels it was there for movement I just felt mm. like it moved um the music in a way that was more restless and that felt right to me um, rather than having everything aligned, which felt a little bit more, um, which felt a little more slowly paced. In this next section, Margaret and I talked about her translations of the Chinese poet Wang Fen. So many of your poems deal with solitude. Not necessarily just literally being alone, but even the solitude that can be felt in the presence of another person, maybe even more so in the presence of especially an intimate other person. And it made me think about translation, which is often done alone, but especially when you're translating somebody else's work, is always done kind of with their presence, with the presence of an imagined person. Mm-hmm on your mind. How did you start translating? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it started um, because I had read some of his poems in an anthology that Copper Canyon put out in, mm. I don't know what year now, it was called Push Open the Window. And it was an anthology of contemporary um, Chinese poetry and had a bunch of different translators. And there were just two poems by him, um, and I, I just I I really loved one of them, and was looking and there was looking for other work by him, and there wasn't stuff that I could find in English. Um, he still doesn't have a full length um, English uh, or a book of his poems translated fully into English. Mm-hmm. Um, although there are many individual poems all over by not just my translations, but many other um, translators into English too. And I um, was going to, I um, was going to uh, Nanjing for a Fulbright and wrote to him. Um, And I really didn't know what would happen if he would even respond to my email. I think that there was some like, back and forth with various people in academia and translators to try to even get his email. And then Mm. um, we agreed to meet for tea when I was there. And we just really hit it off. And we just met then every week for a year. Oh, my God. And would translate. And it was, yeah, he would bring a poem and I would bring a poem. And then we would just talk and translate um, sort of through conversation through That's the, so incredible. it was really, it was amazing. So he was living in Nanjing. Yeah. He's from Nanjing. He lives there still. Um, 
he was living in a different part of the city than he is now. And he, yeah, he teaches at um, Nanjing Institute of Science and Technology. He started the creative writing program there. But yeah, it sort of came out of that. And I didn't think, you know, I didn't have, because I didn't have training. I mean, I still feel like a student of translation. But at the beginning, I really felt like there was no way these could be real translations. And Why? Um, well, I don't know. It seemed like, well, I mean, honestly, the, the first translations that I did were very, very bad. Like they were, I had this experience with those drafts and I still have it, which is a very different experience than drafting or a draft that I would have for a poem where I can, I think I'll have, as I'm, as I'm working on a translation, the feeling that I have solved a problem in a brilliant way. Mm-hmm. And I will be so proud, relieved, um, and I'll step away. And then, like, two weeks later, I'll come back and be, like, aghast. Like, it will actually seem <laughs> stunning to me that I could ever have been a person who thought that was the solution. Right. Whereas with my own work, I think it's much it's much less extreme. Like I'll feel like, oh, I solved this turn and like this, and and maybe I'll have a slightly different attitude when I return to it, but it won't be the feeling of like total misrecognition. Yeah. Um, and when I was first work, working on his poems, I think I would often uh, feel that I had found a perfect solution in English that would then create a line that sounded very awkward musically mm-hmm. um or tonally was just completely off yeah. and um so yeah they definitely were much worse <laughs> in in the very beginning when we were working together and then you know i th- it was after that year i don't think any of those translations have really survived but they were certainly like important to um building the relationship and and the the translations that we've published were mostly done when I was living here. Um, and we would correspond a little through email. At one point, we lived together at Vermont Studio Center for a couple oh, wow. weeks. Yeah, he came. They used, I don't think they still have it, but it was this really cool program where they would fly over a Chinese poet and then also um have a residency for their translator who lived in the States and you could collaborate and be together. That's amazing. I was not expecting such a wild story. So are you're still in touch with him? Oh yeah. I mean, we're, yeah, we're, um, yeah. I mean, he, we're friends. Like, um, yeah, I was supposed to go back, um, right before the pandemic, but obviously that didn't happen. Um, I hope that I, I will at some point, but, um, yeah, he's he's wonderful. I mean, he's like he's at a really different point in his life than me. Like he writes not only poetry but also novels and short stories and essays and he's been um he has a, a lot of books out and had a recent book of essays he wrote about teaching poetry like was ex- has been extremely popular and so he's been like touring nonstop. I think I wanted to get into translation. I just felt a little like at a loss. Mm-hmm. Um it's hard now to retrace all the steps because everything feels like it makes so much sense in retrospect. But yeah. I think it was a little bit uh, luck mm-hmm. that that um, that brought me to it. 
I, it feels like with translation, there's more felicity required because you're always trying to find somebody whose work mm-hmm. <laughs> lends itself to your translation. Yeah. Since since you got tea with him every week, do you want to read tea leaves? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would love to. Tea leaves. As they steep, they become the water's eyebrows, become its slim waist, its thighs and fingers. They're mute as mimes, mimicking my sleeping body. As they steep, they become spring's submarine. Never again will smog defeat them. Here on the other side of the cup, I size up these hermits. I wonder, do they worry? Fear? Hot water is T's wedding veil to crown T's marriage to me. Sometimes the water cries as if to say, look how skinny the bride is, and still she offers you her last scrap of warmth. I pour and re-pour boiling water until all flavors seeped from the tea leaves. Their glum look says, I'm old, my body's swollen. Darling, don't hesitate. Go marry some skinny new tea. (laughs) Brutal. (laughs) But funny. Really brutal. Yeah. I feel like food and drink for him, just from these few poems, yeah. is like furniture for you, where it's just like everything is like, everything lives in on the plate. Right, yeah. If you like look at it, you'll see that it's it knows all about you, even yeah. though it just seems like, um, yeah, not the main event. Mm-hmm. His work seems, or at least your translation, feels so aesthetically different from your poems. Like, I'm looking at this, like, 15-line poem. It's not very heavily enjammed. There are all these very explicit metaphors. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious what you saw in that Copper Canyon anthology that made you say, this is the guy I want to translate. Um, I mean, part of, like... I just love his relationship to to image and um, the sort of like prismatic sense of the object that something like a tea leaf or like a plate or a grape, <laughs> if you um, allowed it to kind of spin inside the poem, could actually reveal. Um, uh, these sorts of other dimensions that seem like much grander and um, more profound, like historical dimensions, political dimensions, um, that there would be this kind of uh, way into emotional and, and social um, life through um, through description. Mm-hmm. And then also something I feel like I really learn from him still like there's a very uncanny way in which a lot of his poems are able to combine humor and elegy which is like kind of a rare marriage sometimes even like cartoonishness and um elegiac grief yeah and that is a is a rare um pairing at least in my experience reading um you know, I think, like, I love that poem of his plate, which feels like it does that. And, um, you know, the 
the plate is the the fork is dancing or like the chopsticks are wearing knee socks and there's something almost um like silly about the way that the imagery is animated but then it's there's this very sort of sinister um undercurrent and political critique and and um way in which the poem is uh not light <laughs> yeah i felt very similarly about the poem salt oh yeah like the idea of this salt just like a rough texture on your throat yeah. being this like act of resistance by the inanimate object right and that the salt is talking to you it's like i yeah. feel like it's not just that salt is being considered as a subject but salt actually has this voice that is addressing the eater mm -hmm. of of it do you mind actually just reading salt sure i would love to Salt. Grain by grain, salt's frozen tears help me count history's disasters. I can't blame salt for telling food you're full of wounds. Salt misses the freedom of the ocean. Remembering waves, salt jumps into a soup, but it finds there only my reflected face. It hides by making itself too soft to chew. Sometimes salt follows a cold sweat, waking me from a nightmare. Dreamed blood tastes like salt, as if in human failure lay the silence of God. Having swum in the ocean, salt considers soup a shallow pond. For salt, every meal is a jail. One day, an extra salty flavor makes me cough and cough. It feels like cold fish bones scraping my throat. Maybe it's salt telling me, I'm going to prison in your body. Don't ever forget who I am. Yeah. I want to laugh, but it also feels really <laughs> sad. Yeah. <laughs> Poor salt. I know. What was it like translating something like this? What, what, what I just, when I look at, I mean, it feels so idiomatic in the, in the English. Mm-hmm. Like, it hides by making itself too soft to chew. Mm -hmm. What were, what was the process of wrangling it into the English like? Yeah, I mean, I guess I tend, I do like a super literal translation first, um, where I like record all the possible, uh, like, translations um, for each word. Um, and then, I mean, a lot of it is just trying to, um, I think, catch the right tone. Um, and so it's a lot of drafts. Um, I'm trying, I don't remember any particular puzzles within this one, but I'm, sh I'm sure that there were, it feels like there's always moments where I'm trying to like get every um, resonance that's in the Chinese into English, and English is like a much clunkier, like less, um, less elegant language than Chinese. I mean, there's, it's just like, the, there's, yeah, there's less sort of compression already uh -huh. yeah. within um, a word by word literal translation. And um, so then to try to get something that feels tonally related um yeah 
and I'm lucky that um, Wong Fan is alive, and I can always email him if I want to see what he thinks about um, a choice. But um, there's so many different ways. That, I mean, I'm sure right now you're immersed in all these different ways of even thinking about how you go about beginning a translation. I've never taken like a translation theory class, but I know that there's like I mean, obviously different philosophical approaches to, mm -hmm. um, you know, those who translate who don't have any of the language that they're translating from and yeah. that, that sort of way. Well, it's like what you said, where there are all these competing resonances. Yeah. And so there's no choice that isn't a trade-off in some sense. Like yeah. You can, if you privilege the... Um, the acoustics of the poem mm -hmm. over the political resonances, then, like, that's a political choice that you're making, too. Yeah. Or vice versa. I know, yeah. And I often, I wonder, do you ever do this, like, when you teach creative writing? I feel like I often will, even if it's not a translation class, just use two translations of a poem. Mm -hmm. And it's so, like, especially for intro to creative writing, it's like, oh, wow. Like, actually, yeah. there's so much to talk about, even on, like, a one-syllable difference mm -hmm. um, of this article or something. Thank you so much. This was so, so nice. I want to say a quick word about the literary translation MFA here at the University of Iowa. I translate from Dutch, and so my friends often ask me, how does the workshop work if you're the only person in your cohort who's translating from Dutch? It's a multilingual workshop, which means the program finds ways to support students working from a really wide range of languages, um, including languages that at times there are no faculty members who, who speak that language. The MFA has existed for 50 years now. It's the first MFA of its kind in the United States, in my opinion, it's the most important institution of its kind in the world. And the program also manages to find full funding in the form of fellowships and TA-ships for more than 90% of its accepted applicants. I think the Literary Translation MFA is a really important element in the broader literary ecosystem. We need to have literary translators who are aware of the stakes of what they're doing, who understand what it means to translate, so I'm really passionate about this program. It's a two-year program. I have been so impressed by the quality of instruction and the quality of the work of my peers. I've built some amazing friendships here, and I find it to just be a really beautiful community. So if you're interested in applying to the Literary Translation MFA at Iowa, the deadline is January 15th. If you want to talk to somebody about it, you can feel free to reach out to the director of the program, Jan Stain. His email address is janstain at uiowa.edu. That's J-A-N hyphen S-T-E-Y-N at uiowa.edu. Or you can reach out to me directly. My email is just jake hyphen goldwasser at uiowa.edu. Before we go, I want to give you a chance to hear a sneak peek from the upcoming issue of Exchange's Journal of Literary Translation. Here is a recording of Caroline Wilcox Royal reading her translation from the German 
of the poems of Dinshir Gucheter. If you like it, you can read a lot more at exchanges.uiowa.edu. Mein Prinz, sollen wir den Nordpol stürmen? Bitte. My Prince, I Am the Ghetto, poems by Dinter Gutiertar, translations by Caroline Wilcox Royal. In my mother's apron pocket, there are still a few greasy coins. Take me, teach me new songs and worldly sins. Take your tweezers and pluck this embedded flea from my heart. Let its glory never find a home. I pack my underwear in a Costco bag, socks, pretzels, cookies, and a cheap volume of poetry dedicated to you, my prince. I am the faulty copy, rebind me, give me a new title, hurry, there is no time to waste. If the coins are enough, an order of fries with mayo will forgive us for dreaming. Do you hear what I'm saying? Last winter, I threw my lunch bag into a recycle bin out on the curb. Two steps later, I heard an icy voice from one of the windows. I'm reporting this to the police. You used my property without permission. Don't go thinking you can help yourself to everything here. I looked into the ice-cold eyes of the man. I saw their fear and or aggression. I saw the drive to possess, which fueled a life of bookkeeping. I saw you, Germany, a lunch bag suddenly becoming the unbearable weight of the world. That's what you did to your people, Germany. At year's end, you proclaimed surplus in the billions. You remember the headlines, don't you? And who paid the bills? Seniors no longer able to make rent? Blue-collar folks ricocheted between rent-to-own companies for a pittance. Hefty deals with every dictator in the world. You make a show of generosity, amen. Give refugees a roof over their heads. Germany, these people are fleeing from the very tanks you manufactured. Thanks for listening to Translator's Note. This show is produced by me, Jake Goldwasser. It's an affiliate of Exchange's Journal of Literary Translation and is made with the support of the University of Iowa Department of World Languages, Literatures, and Cultures, as well as the International Writing Program. Thanks to Nate Repaz for the theme music. Credit for other music used in the show can be found on our website. As always, Translator's Note also wants to thank Arona G, Jan Stein, Tommy Mirai Lopez, and the MFA in Literary Translation community at the University of Iowa, as well as previous hosts of the show, Claire Bregerbelsky, Abby Ryder-Huth, and Julia Conrad for their support. <laughs>